quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm John Avalon. Let's get to it. As the clock winds down to their June 12th meeting, President Trump and Kim Jong-un are getting a boost from a top aide to the North Korean leader. His name is Kim Jong-chol. And the former spymaster is in New York for a whirlwind set of high-stakes talks with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The two men had dinner last night before reconvening the talks today. And just moments ago, Secretary of State Pompeo spoke about today's meeting. We have teams in Singapore and at the DMZ working with North Korean counterparts to prepare for President Trump and Chairman Kim's expected summit in Singapore. Through these series of meetings, I'm confident we're moving in the right direction. The effort now is to come to a set of understandings which can convince the North Koreans of what President Trump has said. If we're able to achieve it, if the North Koreans are prepared, in fact, to denuclearize, this includes all elements of their nuclear program, if we convince, convince them of that, that in fact their security is greater, that in fact the real threat to their security is the continued holding on to of that nuclear weight, nuclear weapons program, and not the converse. So is the Trump-Kim summit any closer to being back on track? It seems both Pompeo and the president are playing it very close to the vest. Hopefully we'll have a meeting on the 12th that's going along very well, but I want it to be meaningful. It doesn't mean it gets all done at one meeting. Maybe you have to have a second or a third, and maybe we'll have none. But it's in good hands. Now, one thing we do know, New York won't be the only stop for Kim Young-chul while he is in the United States. I believe they'll be coming down to Washington on Friday, and a letter is going to be delivered to me from Kim Jong-un. So I look forward to seeing what's in the letter. What's in that letter, one can only guess. But if Trump and Kim make it to the proposed Singapore summit, at least one analyst says the president needs to draw some strict lines for his North Korean counterpart. As soon as Kim Jong-un is photographed next to President Trump, that's a big win for the North Koreans. In order for the United States to walk away from that summit with our heads held up high, we're gonna get the North Koreans to have to make pledges that they thought they would never make, plus verification. Because it's one thing to make a pledge to give up weapons, it's another pledge to actually say, look, I'll let you inspect. And in other news, President Trump seems to be in a forgiving mood today. Call it a pardon palooza. In a few hours ago, Trump announced on Twitter he is planning to pardon Dinesh D'Souza. He's a conservative author who pled guilty to violating campaign finance laws in 2014. This is the third time Trump has pardoned someone popular with his conservative populist base. We're seeing Trump do this one and a half years into a four-year term. Um, And sequentially he's doing these a couple months at a time and so it seems like you know he isn't following the typical process but what else is new and and so it does seem like he's doing this it's not even necessarily political allies but just uh friends people he knows and uh pardons that will please his political supporters and all the pardoning might not be over yet trump also told reporters he is thinking about pardoning former illinois governor rod blagojevich 
and TV personality Martha Stewart. Is there a running theme for all these pardons? D'Souza was found guilty of campaign finance violations. For Blagojevich, it's corruption. For Martha Stewart, it's lying to federal investigators. And it's worth noting that the prosecutions of both Stewart and Blagojevich were connected to James Comey, the man Trump fired as FBI director. Now, some think Trump is signaling his distaste for political crimes, especially the kind of ones being investigated by Robert Mueller. This could be a message to Paul Manafort. It could be a message to Michael Cohn um, that um, hang in there and uh, the cavalry will come um, sooner or later. And when it comes to issues of obstruction, T. Mueller may be taking a closer look at the firing of James Comey, thanks to one of his former deputies, Andrew McCabe. Now, you'll recall that McCabe was fired from his job as deputy FBI director earlier this year after alleged misconduct in his handling of an investigation into the Clinton Foundation. Now CNN has learned that before McCabe left, he drafted a key memo about the conversation he had with Rod Rosenstein, a memo that is now in the hands of Robert Mueller. CNN's Laura Jarrett explains. We're now learning, according to a source familiar, that after Comey was fired, Rosenstein shared with a group at the Justice Department that the president had originally asked him to include the Russia investigation in his own memo on the firing of Comey. And that revelation sparked this response from the president on Twitter. Quote, not that it matters, but I never fired James Comey because of Russia. The corrupt mainstream media loves to keep pushing that narrative, but they know it's not true. Well, that was Mr. Trump this morning. Here's what he told NBC News last year, just a few days after he fired the FBI director. Regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire Comey, knowing there was no good time to do it. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. We'll let you be the judge of which time Trump was telling the truth. But one former federal prosecutor thinks the current deputy attorney general may be in for some serious scrutiny. I think this is another piece of evidence that um, frankly raises questions for Rod Rosenstein. And I wonder if somebody in the Trump camp leaked this to try to uh, get Rosenstein to recuse himself. Interesting. But we should note Rod Rosenstein has been under the Trump microscope ever since he took control of the Mueller probe, a job he got when his boss, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, stepped aside. Now, Sessions' decision to recuse himself has caused friction with the president to put it mildly. And the divide goes back to May of last year, when Trump said Sessions should resign after Bob Mueller was appointed. Some of his jabs over the past 12 months, well, that Sessions is beleaguered, that he's disappointed Trump. And let's not forget the ever-popular Mr. Magoo reference. This week, Trump's tweet that he'd wished he'd picked someone else for the job, and on and on. So will the president give his attorney general the boot? Rudy Giuliani says no, at least not yet. There's no doubt he's complaining about him. So what is he There's saying no now? There's no doubt he has uh, some, some, some grievances. Uh, I don't know that they add him out yet. But I, I, he's not going to fire him before this is over. Nor do I think he should. But Alberto Gonzalez, who served as attorney general for President George W. Bush, says that the president has aired more than enough grievances and looked the worst for it. I'm worried that this is this hurts the image of Donald Trump. It makes him, I think, appear weak and indecisive. He has a responsibility to make sure that the people that serve in the cabinet are, are the best people possible in serving the American people.
Weak, weak and indecisive, two things we know Donald Trump loves being called. Gonzalez, who praised Sessions' work as the nation's top law enforcement officer, also says he thinks Sessions will stay on the job despite the constant attacks. For most attorneys, being the attorney general of the United States is, is the ultimate. It's, it's the dream job. I think he's going to continue to stay there, and I think he's going to continue to take this pummeling uh, and until the president actually fires him. I, I, I would be surprised if Jeff Sessions simply resigns. Now, Rudy Giuliani also took aim at the man who could be most impacted if Sessions departs, Robert Mueller. We'll challenge Mueller to write whatever you got, take your best punch with all your 13 uh, Democrats there. Uh, you couldn't find a Republican. So you got a, a, a group there that, that's a, lynch, a lynching mob. So let them do their job. And boy, we're ready to knock the heck out of you. And a friendly reminder, Giuliani says Mueller needs to wrap up his probe by September 1st, or else he will be, in Giuliani's words, doing a Comey, interfering with the midterm elections. Time will tell if the special counsel pays any heed to Giuliani's warning. Now, just ahead on State of America, can these two diplomats deliver for their very demanding bosses? We'll see how the groundwork's going for the off-again, on-again U.S.-North Korea summit. A lot ahead. The Secretary of State has just wrapped up talks with one of North Korea's savviest negotiators. Is it full steam ahead for their bosses to meet in Singapore? Well, the panel tonight will shed some light on that. Tara Setmeyer, CNN political commentator and board director for Stand Up Republic. Max Boot is a CNN global affairs analyst, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. CNN political analyst Mark Preston is a noted Red Sox fan. And Elliot Ackerman, a CNN national security analyst and former Marine Corps captain. It is great to see you all. Uh, we just heard Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, try to shed some light on that meeting that ended two hours early uh, with the North Korean counterpart. Uh, Max, let me start with you. Uh, they are still using language of a potential summit, but the Secretary of State was all sunshines and light without getting too far ahead of his skis. How do you read his statement? Is this thing on? Well, I think this is kind of emblematic of how confusing and chaotic the uh, the Trump administration is. I mean, it's a week ago that Trump suddenly, uh, on the spur of the moment, canceled the summit after having, on the spur of the moment, declared the summit was on in, in early March. And now it's in limbo, and we have 12 days to go until the summit is actually supposed to take place. And you see all this kind of frenetic last-minute maneuvering going on, which should have been going on for months ahead of time. I mean, this is why it's not a good idea to just announce a summit uh, with another world leader, especially a world leader like Kim Jong-un, without having done the preparation work. And now there's like this push to do the preparation work at the last minute because Trump obviously still wants to have the summit on June 12th. Uh, but what that risks is is some kind of blow up or a cosmetic summit that doesn't achieve anything. I think they ought to take it slow, back off that date, not not try to achieve everything within the next 12 days and really try to explore with the North Koreans how far they're going to go before they risk the prestige, uh, whatever prestige the president of the United States has left on a on a on a summit. But Mark Preston, I mean, this is also evidence of yet again an untraditional president. Yes, it looks like the traditional order of these summits being reversed. But his decision a week ago to abruptly pull out seems to have brought the North Koreans back to the table and show that Trump's got more leverage than North Korea in this negotiation. 
What do you say? Well, John, well, I mean, I mean, look, the, the unpredictability of uh, both world leaders right there got them to the table. The unpredictability took them away from the table, and perhaps this unpredictability will get them back you know, to the table again. But having said that, uh, I'm not a big fan of, of betting on the unpredictable. So, I mean, that in itself is, is, is very concerning. One thing that I took away from uh, what we saw uh, the Secretary of State Pompeo say, uh, more specifically how he said it, was uh, encouraging words, but sobering words. And he didn't talk about how great Donald Trump was as a person to make this happen. And I know that's a, that is a funny comment for our viewers around the world who are wondering why would we say that. But what we've seen time and time again is that folks who are in high cabinet positions for the president have often done things that would cause you to question about the severity or the sincerity of what they're trying to get done. Yeah, that's an important point, Tara. I mean, you know, not only was there not the kind of obsequiousness you sometimes see from cabinet officials, but Secretary of State Pompeo was very careful. You know, he has multiple meetings with both Kims and, and to really try to tamp down expectations about future bumps in the road. Is this something that after one month on the job, you're feeling more confidence about uh, Secretary of State Pompeo? Well, I think that we certainly see a different rapport, a different style uh, with Secretary Pompeo than we did with Rex Tillerson. It was clear that Tillerson and Trump, there was a, a disconnect there very early on um, that he never seemed to get out of. Um, Pompeo, for sure, has uh, more of the president's ear, and it seems that the president has more confidence in Pompeo, which is why he, he appointed him. Um, I, I, I didn't think that Pompeo would be a problem as Secretary of State, so I'm glad to see so far he's performing well. Um, something else that stood out to me during that presser that I found interesting was that he made the point to say that South Korea and Japan yeah. were on the same page as the United States, which um, is important because they were not on the same page uh, about a week week ago. Um, Japan was concerned about the speed in which this was going on and, and what was happening. South Korea, clearly, uh, it looked like their their president oversold That's what was going point. on. There was a lot of there was a lot of confusion happening uh, just a few days ago. So the fact that they're reiterating that everyone seems to be back on the same page is is of note as well. I want to get to Elliot Ackerman because he's served in the intelligence community, the military. The standard Pompeo set is high, complete, irreversible, verifiable denuclearization. Do you have hope that the Kim regime can see that in their self-interest? You know, I think that's obviously going to be the big question. You know, I mean, we're watching very closely now with all the you know tactical diplomatic maneuvering. Um, but you know, the fact remains: if we look at recent history with regards to complete denuclearization, whether it be Iran, you know, or the more extreme example of Libya and Gaddafi, um, you know, it doesn't bode well for the countries that denuclearize, and the, the North Koreans have to see that. So, getting them to commit to denuclearization, I mean, is an exceedingly high bar, um, and it will be interesting to see whether or not uh, Secretary Pompeo and the Trump administration are able to get them there. Thank you all. Stick around for the next segment. Coming up, the human and political cost of a gross underestimate. A look at what the Trump administration got wrong when Puerto Rico was wrecked. And you look at what happened here with really a storm that was just totally overpowering. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. And what is your what is your death count as of this moment? 17? 16, certified. 16 people certified. 16 people versus in the thousands. Now that was President Trump last October, congratulating the governor of Puerto Rico on the official death toll. 
at that point from Hurricane Maria. Now, right now, the official death toll for Puerto Rico stands at 64. But a brand new study by Harvard University estimates it is much higher. It could be as high as 4,600 deaths. Let's get back to the panel to discuss what is a real scandal that's not getting enough attention. Uh, Mark Preston, let me point, start with you because you covered the Bush administration. And this death toll is potentially higher than 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina combined. Yeah. There would have I mean, been it, it, outrage. Devastating. And, and no doubt, John, it's been devastating. And, and really what we've seen from this report and what the authors have said is that it's really basically an indictment about the, how the United States has responded to its own citizens. I mean, Puerto Rico is a territory uh, of the United States. The, the folks who are from Puerto Rico hold the same uh, uh, citizenship rights that we have here in the U.S. So, yes, it is, it is very devastating. We're also going to see a, another report that we expect that's going to come out from George Washington University. That has been commissioned by, uh, uh, by the government of Puerto Rico, John. So hopefully we'll see what those numbers come up with. Fascinating. Elliot, it's estimated in this report that a third of the deaths came from a lack of medical assistance in more rural, remote regions. Is this a failure of FEMA? Does this, is there culpability on the disaster response as brave as those hardworking people are? You know, I think of these types of disasters. I mean, I spent, I was in uh, Katrina as a Marine two days after the hurricane for about a month. And uh, what that experience, Tommy, is what you see oftentimes in these types of disasters is failures you know, all the way up the change from local government all the way up to the federal government. And, you know, it only compounds with time. So I think, you know, what we're probably seeing now is, yes, is that type of a lag where, um, you know, disease is spreading, you have a failure of infrastructure. And if you're not able to get that infrastructure rebuilt in time, uh, the situation is only going to become worse. So I think you're seeing kind of yeah. massive systemic failures all the way down the line. Tara, I mean, this number is 70 times what the official estimate still stands at. And is this because American citizens don't appreciate that Puerto Ricans are American citizens? Is it about race? Is it about remoteness? Why the lack of accountability and outrage over this extraordinary death toll? I don't think that it's Americans don't care. I think that the, the president of the United States showed a really, really um, disturbing lack of empathy for Puerto Rico. I don't think he really appreciated um, Puerto Rico's role as American citizens and as, as a territory of the United States, which led to that very ugly feud that he had with the mayor of San Juan, um, which mm -hmm. I thought was, uh, that was not helpful. I mean, people were dying at the time, and uh, the president of the United States was engaging in, in a feud with the mayor of San Juan. Um, so I think that, there, you know, there's pressure probably from some officials to keep this, this death toll low, because we know how much the president cares about ratings, death toll numbers, comparing them. It's just, mm -hmm. I think it's more about that than it is particularly about race or anything. But it's important to understand that Puerto Rico, the infrastructure there has been a mess for quite some time. And it's sure. been a forgotten territory for a long time. A lot of debt, the, the electrical grid, and the a part of the problem with the response, there was a failure, but also the infrastructure wasn't there to get the disaster teams to the more remote places, unlike Texas and Florida, that just compounded what was an absolute human tragedy. And it looks like FEMA is dedicated about $100 billion to expanding those types of response teams in the future in case something like that ever happens again. So at least they're learning their lesson from where they the, failed. The infrastructure is an important point. Max, just take us home quickly. What are the right lessons to learn so this doesn't happen again. Well, the big lesson, John, is we do need to study what happened. I mean, remember how Congress spent years probing what happened in Benghazi. I think we need a full congressional investigation of what went wrong yes. in the case of Puerto Rico. And not just what went wrong, but why were the initial death numbers so far off? Because 
was this just incompetence or was it a cover-up? Because, you know, if, the, if we had known at the time that 4,000 people had died, the political storm would have been much greater for President right. Trump than it actually was. And so, you know, this is a tragedy on so many levels, and, he needs to, and the president okay. needs to be held accountable, just as President Agreed. Bush was held accountable for the failures in Katrina. All right. Thank you, Max. Thank you, everyone. And that is the State of America tonight. Kate Baldwin will be back here tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.